welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, animal behavior specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF Wolf Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me again today. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or that follow button, do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday and you're going to want to check them out. Now you can also follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. And if the visual thing, well, if that's more your thing, you can head on over to YouTube, find my YouTube channel there at youtube.com slash speakadogcast. And if you want to support the show even further, you can become a patron of the show today at patreon.com slash speakadogcast. And if you guys love what you're hearing, do me a favor, scroll on down, give me that five-star rating, leave me a review. I would love to hear what you're thinking. And of course, on YouTube, click that thumbs up. Yes, I would greatly appreciate it. Now on today's show, nicknaming your dog, does it hurt your training? Yes, maybe something you hadn't thought about before. Do you have like 50 different nicknames for your dogs? Does it hinder your training? We'll, we'll get into that and some more. Then we have a segment on stopping your dog from bolting. Do you have a bolter at home? Guys, it's a safety thing. It's going to, you know, we don't want our dogs to get hurt. I don't want you guys to get hurt. So we're going to talk about how to get your dog to stop bolting. Then comes the history of Animal Mascots 101, and there actually won't be a Q&A today. We're going to skip the listener Q&A this week. We'll be back with it next week. But if you guys have questions about dog training, animal training, anything about dogs in general, send them on over my way. You can email me questions at speakadogcast.com or message me on social media. Your question might actually get featured on the show. Now, before we get going with today's show, I have to give you that trivia question. And today's question is going to be, what is the only bird that can walk upright. Yes, what is the only bird that can walk upright? I will give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's podcast, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, nicknaming your dog. Does it hurt your training? This is such an interesting topic, really it is. And, you know, I have a story that kind of relates to this in the same sense of what dogs interpret, what dogs understand, to what degree do they understand a word versus versus like a, a tone and connotation of a word. So we're going to talk in depth a little bit about this today, about nicknaming your dog, does it really hurt your training and why? And look, the short answer is yes and no. I mean, that's just, that's the short answer right there. Yes, it can hurt your training. No, it doesn't necessarily hurt your training. Um, But it's a very interesting topic. And look, when it comes down to it, it really comes down to conditioning, right? We talk about conditioning, reinforcement, punishment, um, understanding these terms. And so we've got to kind of scratch the surface a little bit with this today in order to kind of, in my opinion, set up context for understanding why nicknaming can potentially hurt training with your dog. So here we go. you know, look, very, very simply put, guys, every animal on this planet, we all learn the same way. doesn't matter what species, what we are. It really doesn't. It does not matter because at the end of the day, there's always this, and, and I see it as like this ebb and flow of the universe, of the planet, of how everything works. There's always a good, a bad, a, 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 you know, a yin and a yang. There's always this ebb and flow. Who's to say what good and bad is? We're not getting into that. Uh, no philosophy today. Straightforward science. <laughs> That's what we're going to focus on. So... When we talk about every animal on this planet learning the same way, what that means is very simply put, behavior is either going to be reinforced and strengthened, or it's going to be weakened and punished, 
right? Does that make sense? So a behavior is either going to be reinforced and strengthened, therefore it's more likely to repeat itself again, that behavior, if it's reinforced and strengthened, versus uh, weakening a behavior, decreasing a behavior. That decreases the likelihood that an animal will want to, want to choose to choose, uh, do that behavior again, right? So there are all different types of reinforcements and punishments out there, right? And it really is going to come down to your motivation, it's going to come down to your motivation, and that's what's going to explain what a reinforcement versus punishment is. Now, again, to kind of go a little bit deeper than the surface today, definition of reinforcement is, uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> positive. Let's actually, let's start with positive reinforcement. I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here. Positive reinforcement is the addition of a stimulus in order to increase the targeted behavior, right? So negative reinforcement, therefore, is the removal of a stimulus in order also to increase a targeted behavior. Just like I said a second ago, right? Reinforcement increases behavior. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter whether that word positive or negative is in front of it, doesn't matter. The word reinforcement automatically connotates that something is being strengthened, something is going to increase because of this, all right? So therefore, anything positive or negative reinforcement is the addition or the removal, whether it's positive, addition, removal, negative, of a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior. Now, there's also punishment. That's how we weaken. That's how we weaken and decrease a behavior. That's how we decrease the likelihood that an animal is going to want to choose to repeat that behavior again is through the form of punishment. The most basic form of punishment that I always love to give because we all understand it, right? We all do. Whether you drive a car or not, you understand the concept of speed limits, right? Speed limits are a thing. And if you break a speed limit, you get a ticket. Therefore, you drive the speed limit in order to work to avoid getting a ticket. A ticket's a form of punishment because the definition of punishment is... Anything an animal works to avoid. I work to avoid getting a ticket. Therefore, a ticket is a form of punishment to me, right? So pretty simple. Like everybody gets that. Now let's, let's take this and let's, like, let's, let's talk about the little kid example. This is how I put it all together. This is how we learn what positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment is all together. Guys, there's three of them. Three equals a whole, right? Three thirds. We have three thirds here to the problem. <laughs> All right. The solution on the other side of the equal sign is behavior, whatever behavior that's going to be, whatever behavior gets strengthened and reinforced or weakened and decreases. So I have three things, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement and punishment. Okay. So let's talk about a little kid. Let's say we have a little kid. They're throwing a tantrum. They're being a brat. We don't like that behavior. We want to punish that behavior. We want the behavior to what? decrease, right? I want the bratty tantrumingness <laughs> to decrease. So we have to apply some form of, well, punishment. That's what the definitions dictate. Anything an animal works to avoid in order to get something to decrease, we have to use punishment. All right, we're going to send that little kid to their room. Little kid, go to your room. Wow, we throw a tantrum. They're going crazy. They're going nuts. All right, we put them in the room. 10 minutes later, they finally calm down. They come off of it. Now, in this scenario so far, what's happening? We have a behavior that we don't like. So therefore, we need it to decrease. We've applied a punishment. The punishment is going to be sending the kid to the room, a timeout, if you will, right? Now, once that punishment actually works, which is what we want the child to top, stop tantruming, okay? We want the child to stop tantruming. If they stop tantruming and the punishment works, we don't want to keep punishing that behavior. Why? Because, well, guess what? The crying, the bad behavior, the brattiness, that all decreased. It's gone. What's happened now is we now have a behavior we like, calm, not crying, not being bratty. <laughs> That's when we might go to the room and go, well, let's see. They're doing what I like now. I need to increase that behavior. Therefore, I have to remove the punishment 
negative reinforcement. I have to remove the punishment to get them to understand, hey, I like that you stopped being a brat. <laughs> I like that you stopped tantruming. I like that you stopped crying. I'm going to take the punishment away now as a form of reinforcement to increase the likelihood that you'll see, okay, if I just calm down, they, they, they don't send me to my room, right? That, that's, that's eventually what we want the connection to be for that child part of it, right? Now, child comes out of the room, they keep being awesome. They keep not being a brat. They keep doing what we like. We want to increase that behavior. We want to reinforce and strengthen that behavior. Well, I might say, hey, here's dessert. You get dessert now. I'm going to add a stimulus in order to reinforce that targeted behavior of being calm and less bratty. Does that make sense? Right? Pretty simple, guys. It takes three thirds to make a whole. We all know that. We've been to math class. We know it takes takes three parts in order to make a whole. Five three parts. You know, might, might could take four, and we have fourth, but we're not getting into that today. All right, so we have three parts to it. I have to be able to tell the child, the animal, the dog, whatever. I have to be able to tell them what I don't like, and decrease that behavior. That's punishment. Then I have to be able to remove that punishment to tell them I do like it because they stop doing the wrong thing. They start doing the right thing. I don't want to keep punishing that. That removal is negative reinforcement to increase and reinforce that behavior of not being bratty. And then in order to keep that behavior going and extend it and increase the likelihood that that animal is going to want to keep doing that, I positively reinforce it. Whew. I'm exhausted. <laughs> All right. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And how long was that, right? So there it is. Now, what in the world does this have to do with nicknaming your dog? <laughs> because we have to understand conditioning, guys, because here it is. Why do animals respond to their name? Like, think about it. This is a serious question. Why does an animal respond to their name? Like, you have to go, well, geez, that's, I mean, that's a little bit of a head scratcher, right? Like, why do they? Think about it, though. It's pretty simple. I mean, it is. We like, oh, that was very complicated and a lot of info. But now that we know all that info, we can actually simplify it. We give the dog a pat on the head and we say, good boy, Fluffy. Good girl, Fluffy. Whatever. I give him a treat. Good, Fluffy. I feed them their food. Good, Fluffy. We're playing. Good, Fluffy. Oh, what a good Fluffy. Fluffy, come here. Paired with reinforcement when they come to you. It's all because that name, that tone, that everything we pair with Fluffy it gets strengthened. And so that dog learns hearing that trigger, hearing that, that tone, that name, that whatever you want to call it, it gets it something. And we strengthen it so much to the point that they can individually know their names. It's called conditioning. It's no different with us. That's why we, we respond so well to our own names being called. It's a conditioned response. It's a conditioned behavior. And so here it is. Can nicknaming your dog hurt? This is where the yes comes in. Because think about it. If you call your dog Fluffy, 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 thousands of times, and then all of a sudden one day it's Fluffasnuffagus. <laughs> Flufferoonie. Fluffkins. Uh, something that doesn't fluff and puff. I mean, come on. I can go on and on and on. Now, at least those have the word fluff, fluffy in it. Okay? But if you start calling your dog something completely different that somehow is an attached nickname, you're reconditioning that dog to, to, okay? So most likely, most likely, I can almost guarantee a nickname will never be as strengthened as a name. And the other problem is, it's all about repetition and consistency when it comes to conditioning. So the problem is if you have changed your consistency and pattern of the name, and then one day you're trying to call them and fluff, fluffy, fluffy, and you're using all these different names, 
that many more conditioning steps is going through your dog's brain before they get to, oh, I should come back to you. I know. Like, what, really? I never really thought about that. Now, here's an interesting thing. Years ago, I had a client who had a, a son who was doing a science fair project, and this was so cool. Uh, and I worked with them and their dog, and he was doing a science project on can't uh, do dogs. I, I don't remember the exact title. This was quite a few years ago. But it had something to do with the effect of, like, essentially, do dogs cue in more to the name or excuse me, the command. This is about commands, not a name. Uh, do they cue? But same thing, guys. Same thing. It's just conditioning a word, right, with a response. Uh, do they cue more into the actual word or the tone that's being said? And the cool thing was he asked for my help because I had a pool of dogs, right? We brought like seven, eight, nine, ten dogs over uh, to his house. We used his dog and all of my dogs that I had. And um, especially like it was interesting with one of my dogs, right? With one of my dogs, especially who I have a very close bond with, who's very, was very in tune with me, Colby Jack. This is my golden retriever. Uh, was, God, man, now I was close with that dog. That was my buddy. He was so unbelievably in tune with me. Um, lots of training, guys. Lots of relationship building, trust. Was awesome. Um, but it was fascinating because we would do, <laughs> I'd ask him to sit like I normally were. Like that's my probably my normal sit, sit tone. And then I'd go sit or sit, sit, sit. <laughs> I'd like do like five different ways of saying the word sit to see if he'd respond. And sure enough, well, yeah, after he usually like when I threw a different one at him, a different tone, but a command he knew, he would sort of like think about it <laughs> for five seconds. Like, I'm pretty sure he told me to sit, but that didn't sound right. And then he might go into it after like five or 10 seconds into that sit, right? It was interesting. It was fascinating. And so really the conclusion was, yes, they cue into both. But what's what's amazing is how much your dog is going to get out of your consistency in your tone and what word that you're using. So it has to do with more how you condition the behavior than necessarily the tone or or, or the word. Okay, fascinating. Now, the word was definitely a little stronger because it's the actual word they're cueing into. The tone comes secondary, especially because you can't be perfectly identical with your tone every time. So, of course, they learn to hear some fluctuation in tone, but the word never changes, right? So the word was definitely stronger, and that's what we discovered uh, in doing this experiment. But, man, it was fascinating. It was really cool, and we got to see the power of conditioning. And so that's just it. Nicknaming your dog can hurt your training in the sense that if you haven't conditioned that nickname enough or properly, or for that matter, you use too many nicknames, when, when you need a moment when your dog, like if you're in a, you're going to find yourself in a moment is what I'm trying to say, where you're going to need your dog's name to cut through and mean something. Now guys, when I talk about a recall, side note here, well, when I've talked about training a recall, what do I tell you to do? I usually tell you to use a kissy noise or a whistle, something other than us talking. Why? Because it's different and it cuts through. It's, it's connected to the recall. It's a tone that's specific and we're not playing the nickname game and your dog is ciphering through it. You see what I'm saying? Conditioning is all about consistency and routine. And so in a, I've talked about this before too. When I bring dogs in for a boot camp, um, I, I teach a release word, right? We've talked about release word too. I release the dogs. Like if I ask them to sit, they need to continue sitting until I say, all right. Now, even that, even the way I just said that was so autopilot for myself. All right. All right, all right. I kind of come off of it like that 
to a point that it's so consistent that when I bring a dog home, I have to warn owners that, and I've even, look, I try to correct it myself. I've, I've worked on this over the years because I didn't even catch myself and how consistent I became. Um, I try to change it up and not use the same tone every time because when I return them to the owners, the owners are sure as hell not going to sound like me. You know, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. So I try to change it up a little bit and tell owners like, look, if, if I, they, you say the word all right and they don't pop up immediately, it could be because they're going, wait, he didn't use the right tone there. You didn't go, all right, like David does. You know, like that's how consistent. Of course, they're not thinking like David does. It's all conditioning, guys, right? So this is where nicknaming your dog can potentially hurt your training. I mean, that's just, that's the truth of it. You know, you can't fight conditioning. You can't fight the science of it. You cannot fight uh, how much you reinforce their original name from day one, you know? Uh, that's, uh, that's the other thing. This is why you can change a dog's name. Let's say we have a stray dog who who got away from the owner. He was someone's dog for six years. He responded to the one name for six years, and then the rescue gets him and they rename him. How quickly does that dog learn his new name? Why? Because every time you come in, you go, hi, Fluffy. You're in your food, Fluffy. I'm going to give you a pet, Fluffy. And so quickly. And if that doesn't teach you something, by the way, if that does not teach you something right there, about how consistent you need to be in your training and how many many repetitions, how strengthened every dog on this planet knows their name. Why? Because the owners train. It's like the one thing every owner on this planet trains correctly is, is their dog's name. <laughs> because they're consistent, they're routine, and they, 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 they strengthen it to a point that the dog knows its name in a couple matter of a couple days, weeks, not even, you know? So... It is fascinating. I mean, it really is. To me, this is very interesting stuff, talking about conditioning and tone and, and, and what level of it uh, is the tone versus the word. It really is. And so that's what this is about when it comes to nicknaming your dog. It's not like there's any, look, I'm not here saying you shouldn't nickname your dogs. That's not what I'm saying. My dogs all have nicknames. Honestly, dogs that come in this house always end up earning nicknames. Um, it's just the way it goes. <laughs> and that's just fine, you know? But understand that when it comes to training, maybe you should try to use, you know, if you're, you're setting aside five, 10 minutes a day or out on the walk or you're trying to get a recall, think about the way you're saying your dog's name. Think about if you're having success in your training and think about if that could be one minor detail that actually may not be so minor that's hindering your training. So just consider the way you're using your nicknames with your dogs. Consider the way you're conditioning it. Understand the difference between reinforcing and punishing because it all has to do all comes in and combines together, all, all interchanges. So you can't ignore the rules of psychology and the rules of conditioning. Uh, so something to think about. And next time you're out training your dog, make sure you're trying to be consistent and using one name. <laughs> of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? Well, we can help. At The Nature of Training and Speak a Dogcast, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Our virtual training programs are catered to you and your pet and create a training plan that gets results. For more information, you can check out our website at www.thenatureoftraining.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. With the ability to connect, teach, and train with pet owners around the world, together we can make a better home for our furry friends. The Nature of Training and Speak a Dogcast, helping you achieve success with your pet.
next on Speak a Dogcast, stopping your dog from bolting. Yes, we definitely don't want our dogs bolting out the door. Clearly and obviously it can be dangerous for them. It can also be dangerous for anybody chasing after them in the streets or for that matter, the dog knocking someone over, getting out the door, whether it's grandparents or young kids or even somewhere in between. You know, it can it can, it can hurt anybody not being knocked on the ground by a big enough dog, even a little dog. So it's really important that our dogs learn to not bolt out the doors, slow it down, think about what they're doing. And obviously it's for everybody's safety. So how do we get our dogs to stop doing that? You know what it always comes down to, guys. Six-foot leash and a martingale collar. That's where it's going to begin. That's where it's going to start. Um, look, part of it is it also starts in how you let your dog out of the door in general. Whether they're leashed up or not, how you let your dog out of the door is just going to set precedence for when that door opens, whether they're leashed up or not. So even something like going to the backyard, if it's first thing in the morning or we're just letting our dog out to go to the bathroom, if you open that slider, you open that door and your dog is already out before you even get the door all the way open, that's a problem, right? Like let's say, oh, David, it doesn't matter. We have a fenced backyard. I can just let him go. It doesn't matter. Your dog is not going to distinguish unless you work and train it. They're not going to distinguish the difference between this door or that door. If your dog is a bolter, your dog is a bolter. There's no in between because that is what you've reinforced and that's what you've trained. So look, that's the first thing I, I gotta wag my finger, I hate to say it. Unless you have a rescue dog that's brand new and they're scared and you're dealing with some issues like that and that's why they're bolting, different story. If you've had your dog forever, if you've raised your dog, if you've had your dog a long time, if your dog wasn't a bolter and now they are, I'm wagging my finger at you because I hate to say it, it's your fault. Guys, our dogs are a product of us. Whatever we condition, whatever we let happen, whatever behaviors we let stack up over time, that's what creates these end result behaviors that you're dealing with right now. Just like ourselves, whatever patterns we do for years and years and years and years is the end result of the human being you see in front of you. Yourself, myself, my experiences, everything in my life has created the person I, no different. No different, and guess what? My parents, to some degree, get to take fault for that, whether they like it or not, right? Uh, they raised me, so they have to take fault with whether the good or the bad, they're responsible for at least some level of the person you see in front of you today. And it's the same holds true with you, and the same hold true, holds true with your dogs. I know, you may not wanna hear it, guys, but your dog's bad behavior is most likely a result of you. Sorry. Truth bomb. There it is. I just, that's that's the truth. I can't sugarcoat it. Can't do it. There it is. All right. So, how do we fix it? How do we fix your screw up? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's the wonderful thing about dogs, guys. We can change these behaviors relatively quickly with the right knowledge, the right understanding, and of course, the right amount of time and training put into it. Okay. So it always starts with that six foot leash and a martingale collar. Always, guys. Training has to always start. I mean, you, you got to walk before you run, and it's no different. I can't expect my dog to just immediately know after a handful of days of training to know to not bolt out that door. So it always is going to start with leash and collar. The next thing it's going to start with is, uh, is, is awareness on your part and awareness on everybody who lives in your home. We need to start being aware of the door because a lot of times I discover, while yes, the dog bolting is a problem, a lot of the reasons the dog bolts is because people leave the door open or cracked or they don't close it all the way or they're just unaware. 
You need to be aware. I'm telling you right now, you're the dog owner, take responsibility for it. It is now everyone's job inside this household to make sure that door is shut at all times. And if the door has to stay open, you are putting your dog away. Put them in a bedroom, put them behind a closed door where they do not have the opportunity to bolt because part of stopping the bolting is just that, stopping the bolting. Management of uncontrolled circumstances because guys, if you do all this wonderful work for a month straight and your dog is doing great with trying, you know, we're trying to work on bolting and then one day someone leaves the door open and your dog's gone for half an hour, 45 minutes, you just done did all of that 30 days of work with that one instance. So I'm going to stress this one is the biggest thing to stopping your dog from bolting, management of the household, management of the door, and management of knowing where your dog is, all right? Now, when we go to let them outside, let's start with the scenario of we have a fenced backyard, David, all right? So not a problem that we can let them out in the backyard. We don't have to worry about them bolting with the exception of did the lawn guy close the fence? Did your kids close the fence when they were done playing? It may not be ideal, but you need to walk outside first before you let your dog out and check and see if the gates are closed, okay? Big one, again, guys, that containment goes back to what I just said. All right, so then let's say we've checked that and we are all good. We're gonna leash up our dog and we're going to put them in a sit and a stay. Pretty simple, right? Then we're going to open the door ever so slightly. <laughs> we most likely know what's going to happen. The dog's going to pr probably try to bolt. That's why we have them leashed up. We say no, we close the door, we put them back in a sit and we say stay. We open the door just a little bit. They might bolt again. We're gonna rinse and repeat this process until we can get to the point that we can just open the door all the way and the dog sits and chills. Now, if they're chilling, all good. Give them some treats, give them some praise. Don't make it a huge deal, don't make it a big deal. We're not trying to pump them up. We're not trying to get them overexcited. We're just simply trying to reinforce the relaxing behavior. And if you start reinforcing excitement and getting nuts, then we're reinforcing excited behavior. That's not what we're looking for. The excitement is bolting out the door. So that's what we want to avoid. And we want to increase and reinforce relaxation. All right, relaxation. There you go, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Ideally, guys, we should have a nice loose leash. Our dog should be chilling. And we should be able to stand in front of this open door for five minutes, if possible. This is the big test. Can your dog really just sit there and relax? Better yet, over time, do they end up just lying down and kicking their legs out and just chilling with the door open? That's ideal. That's what we're looking for. And you have to have the patience to wait them out and give them enough info on what you are looking for, what you're trying to get. And so anytime they relax, we have to reinforce it. This is what it's going to take. We're gonna spend time sitting at the door and taking away the overexcitement changing what the perception of the door is and reinforcing relaxation. So now, now your dog looks at the door as a relaxing thing as opposed to this overexcited goosh bolt out the door. If you can start chilling with your dog by the, by the doors and they're just pfft, chilling, <laughs> then we can start letting them out. But until we get that relaxation, that door is never going to stop being an overexcited thing, right? So... We want to start with that back door because we want to start totally controlled. God forbid the leash gets away from you or whatever. We want to be safe if we can start really controlled even better. So I'm all about trying to start in the backyard. Then once we're ready to release them through the door, now this is very important. Uh, once we're ready to release them through the door, we need to make sure it stays relaxed. If I go to release them and they bolt out the door, well, that's not what we're looking for, right? Turn around, hence hence the leash, we're still leashed up, turn around, come back inside, go back to the last place we had success in a sit and stay, wait for relaxation and try it again. 
The good news is, guys, we can turn around and come back inside and try it as many times as we need to. And some dogs will need 20 repetitions, I'm telling you now, because some dogs have, have really associated this door as this just ridiculously overexciting thing, okay? So if we can really start to reinforce the calmness before we walk out the door, and then as we walk out the door, then once we're out the door, should be less of a problem. Now, guys, this is going to take some time. I'm telling you now, be patient with this. Take your time with this. Really only accept relaxing and non-pulling behaviors, and you'll discover how much less exciting the door will be. Now, we're also, let's go back for a moment. I did say we're going into a sit, and we're going into a stay. We really wanna be making, we wanna make sure we're really working that stay and release word. So that way, it's very black and white to your dog. They, they understand very quickly, either I'm released out the door, or I'm not. It's that simple, no in between. Then we can start working at the front door with this exercise. Now, you should be walking your dog daily, right? We've talked about that how many times in this episode, ad nauseum. So you should be walking your dog daily, and every time you go to take your dog for a walk, we're practicing the same exercise of a sit, a stay, being calm in front of the door with the door open and walking. Now, sometimes guys, we're gonna wait 10 seconds before we walk out the door, as long as they're relaxed. Sometimes we're gonna wait 10 minutes before walking out the door. We're gonna change it up, so that way your dog just ends up giving in and going, Pfft. I'll just wait for the release, cool, no worries. The problem is your dog is so hyper-focused and outside, 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 where are we going, where are we going, where are we going, where are we going, and that's what we reinforce and strengthen and strengthen, and they literally think they're just supposed to be like this all the time. Instead of slowing it down, relaxing it, and teaching them to just go, all right, yeah, well, we'll go when you, we'll go when you tell me to go, cool, I'm just gonna lie down. And Everybody wants a dog like that, everybody does. You see one of those chill dogs out in public? How many people are like, man, I wish my dog would do that. Man, I wish my dog would do that. They can, and it starts here by stopping your dog from bolting out the door. I'm serious, it, it, it just puts them in that mindset when they bolt out the door. And then they think they get out the door and they're just supposed to be go, 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 go. And you wonder why you can't control, can't control the walk either. You know, I'm just honesty, you know. Um, we, we've, I've even gone over, you know, this exercise, this is a little different we're talking about today, but we've gone over this exercise on my walk episodes and my walk segments quite a few times because this is such a vital, important part about getting your dog outside and getting them on the walk and keeping their focus and keeping them calm. You cannot take your dog out into public successfully if your dog bolts like that out the door. I'm just, I'm, you know, there's just no way. There's no way. So it starts here. It starts with teaching your dog to be calm in front of the door, reconditioning what the door means, teaching relaxation, and restructuring what it is, right? How we do it. So it really is that simple. Now, to the point that we get to having our dogs off leash and the door accidentally opens, that takes time. That does take time, guys. We have to be patient with our training. Every dog is going to be a little different, but you'll discover if we put those parameters and rules on the door, if you don't go outside unless you're released, it will change everything for bolting dogs, but it takes time, repetition, consistency, and dedication on everybody in your household to the training. So remember guys, when we talk about getting a dog to stop bolting, the first thing we have to talk about is management of the door and management of your dog. Knowing that the door is closed at all times, it's not cracked, it's not potentially open, well that door doesn't latch so well, well you better make sure it's closed then, right? Uh, understanding if we have to have the door open for a little while, the dog needs to be contained before we do that. Making sure we're checking fences before we let dogs into the fenced backyard, or excuse me, the gates rather, to the fences to make sure our backyards are contained. It's all about setting your dog up for success and stopping the bolting to begin with, then we work it with a leash and collar, teaching our dog the parameters and rules of the door. Release word, sit and stay, release word in order to go out. We take our time with it, we reinforce relaxation, we restructure it to be a relaxing thing as opposed to an overexcited crazy thing, okay? Then we control it once we get out the door, 
We're not letting them pull us. If they do, we turn around back inside, go right back to the last place you had success with it. Take your time, slow it down, practice this multiple times daily. Yes, daily. And of course, guys, look, one other note we have to make about this. If your dog is a bolter, I can almost guarantee you with 100% certainty your dog is not getting enough stimulation, walks, and exercise. Just the truth of it. So if you also want to stop this bolting nonsense, you've got to increase the exercise, walks, focus, stimulation, everything out of your dog. Your dog is literally begging you for something to do. That's why they're bolting on you. All right? So think about that as well. Supplement with exercise, guys. But Batten down the hatches, guys, okay? Got it as a family. Everybody's got to come together, follow the rules, put in the time, put in the training, and you can get your dog to stop bolting out the door. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the history of Animal Mascots 101. Today, we'll be talking about St. Joseph's University. Now, also called St. Joe's, they were founded as a private institution in 1851 called St. Joseph's College. It is the seventh oldest Jesuit university in the United States and the fourth oldest university in Philadelphia. Their athletic teams compete in the Division I sports, and their mascot has gained a reputation for being arguably one of the best mascots in college sports, and I would tend to agree. Now, their mascot is the Hawk, but not just any hawk. No, this hawk is the hardest working mascot in all of college sports. He is known for flapping his wings for the entire basketball game. Yes, you actually heard me right. He literally flaps his wings for the entire basketball game, including halftime, and has been doing so since 1956. Now, he'll also come down and fly in figure eights on the court numerous times during timeouts, all still while flapping the wings. Now, obviously, guys, I'm talking about a person in a hawk suit, not a real hawk. <laughs> yes, now the constant motion and dedication to the team helped create the school's slogan, the hawk will never die. Now, a few years back, ESPN did something cool. They actually made a flap-o-meter, yes, a flap-o-meter, on national telecast to estimate the number of times that the hawk flaps its wings in a game. What's your guess? How many times do you think in an NCAA basketball game this hawk is flapping his wings? How many flaps? The number is estimated to be 3,500 flaps during a regulation game. That's not including overtime, right? <laughs> in the 1930s, the college held a campus-wide contest to determine the new mascot, and the hawk was the one chosen. The hawk costume made its debut on December 3rd, 1955, where St. Joe's beat Rhode Island 84-72. to over the years, the Hawk has won multiple awards and it's been recognized as one of the best mascots in college sports. And a total of 61 students have worn the Hawk suit representing the school for both the men's and the women's basketball programs. Now, the student chosen for the role travels to every single game and those who hold the position even get a full ride scholarship. Now, after thousands of flaps and circles around the court, the Hawk was due for an update for the costume this year. And on August 25th, they debuted the latest iteration of the St. Joe's Hawk. The answer to today's trivia question, what is the only bird that can walk upright? It's the penguin. Yes, the penguin is the only bird that can walk upright. <laughs> 
that'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or that follow button, do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday and you're going to want to check them out. You can also follow me on Instagram at speakadogcast. Check out my YouTube channel at speakadogcast. Become a patron of the show today at patreon.com slash speakadogcast. If you love what you're hearing, do me a favor, scroll on down, click that five-star rating, leave me a thumbs up. I would greatly appreciate it. I want to thank my patrons, my pup supporter, Regula Wright, and my dog friend, Maureen Crossan. Have a wonderful week, and don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Oh,